Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I've entitled our message today, Broken. We're continuing in our series AD 30, which is basically a chronological walk through the life of Christ. An article on the website, The Science of Us, listed what they called 17 things we know about forgiveness. Perhaps the most interesting scientific study on forgiveness noted who or what does not forgive. The article summarized the research this way. Cats never forgive. Scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. The bulk of the research has been on primates like uh, bonobos, mountain gorillas, chimps, who often follow confrontations with friendly behavior like embracing or kissing. Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates like goats and hyenas. The only species that has so far failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are domestic cats. Now, you ask me, Paul, what does that have to do with our sermon today? And I would admit absolutely nothing, except I felt it was important for you to know about this, because perhaps during COVID, you're getting a little lonely, you're thinking about going down to the Humane Society, and you've got a pet choice to make. You see over here the dogs, they're barking, they're whimpering. They express what I would say is godlike characteristics of loyalty and love, unconditional love. And then over here you've got these unforgiving cats which represent the values of the evil one. And so I just thought it's important that you know about this. One of the marvels of the internet age is a thing called Pandora Radio. When you listen to a radio station on terrestrial or satellite radio, you have to listen to every song played. You don't have a choice. You can switch the station, but you can't change the songs. You're stuck with whatever you're given. But that's not so on Pandora. On Pandora, you put in different singers, bands, or songs that you like, and they use an algorithm to parse the music that you list. The algorithm asks, is this rock, or is it soft rock, or is it hard rock? Is it antiphonal? Does it have guitar leads? Does it have a front man? It analyzes what you like, and then it can incorporate other similar songs and artists into the mix, your mix. And by each song that's played, Pandora puts a little thumbs-up sign and a little thumbs-down sign, and when you click the thumbs-up sign, the algorithm is strengthened even more to your tastes, and it will play more music just like that. If you click the thumbs-down sign, Pandora will just skip that particular song and bring up a different one for you to judge. In an age where customization of lifestyle and belief has become the norm, this is often the way we approach the Bible. We're like Pandora. I like 1 Corinthians 13 about love. I don't like 1 Corinthians 11 about women. I like the book of Joshua about God bringing the Israelites into the promised land. I don't like the parts of Joshua about killing people. I like Jesus. I like the baby in the manger. I don't like Jesus who calls a woman a dog or men vipers. I like Jesus in the Beatitudes. I don't like him when he talks about plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand. See, we tailor and customize our view of Scripture and ultimately our view of God. It's like we have our own internal algorithm all the time sorting through and processing the biblical data to say, oh, I accept this part, I'll preach this part, 
this part is useful to modern society, but this other part I'm embarrassed or maybe even ashamed of. That writer nailed it. We are moral Pandora stations. We ignore the stations and songs in our Bibles that don't resonate with the culture. We explain away some songs as irrelevant. i got to be honest, it's easier to preach certain things today, or I should say harder to preach certain things today than it was 20 or 30 years ago, easier to preach others. We naturally start picking and choosing based on what we understand is going to be accepted We explain away some songs in the Bible as irrelevant. Nobody likes those. That can't be what God meant. I'm not going to play that one. That one's going to get a thumbs down. I don't want to see that anywhere else in Scripture. Some of us don't like the Bible's hard rock, God's justice, holiness. And so we adjust our views of God to get through that. We prefer the Bible's easy listening, or God's love and mercy and Jesus hugging people and kissing babies. And by the time our algorithm has been applied, there's a good chance that we've actually changed God's expectations for us. We've watered them down. In some cases, we've gutted them. And we've been studying the life of Christ. Last week, we began in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most popular sermons. Many scholars believe this wasn't given in one setting, probably at one time period, maybe over a couple of days, maybe three days. Uh, And it's probably a compilation of sort of the best of Jesus during that time. And after that, Jesus actually, during that Sermon on the Mount, after what we talked about last week, sort of addresses this Pandora effect. And it's startling what he says. He actually takes commands that we're all familiar with and he plays them the way they were originally written to be played. And it showed his followers how truly broken we all actually are. Now I want to read that for you. It's in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible near you, it's going to be on, you get to the New Testament, the last third of the Bible, it's going to be on page 3. So it's going to be on page 3, the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel. Now this is a little bit of a long passage, so if you're at home, just stay with me, try to listen to the words here. This is really one of Jesus' most important sermons, and I want you to stay with, I want to get through this part in its entirety. Matthew 5, verse 17. Now this first couple of verses are one of the more confusing parts of this sermon. We'll talk about that in a moment. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that should concern all of us because those were pretty good guys. Now, here's the bulk of the sermon. You have heard that it was said that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering, 
at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you'll not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said, second command, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Third command. It was said, or you've understood, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Next command. You've heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Don't turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, actually, you won't find hate your enemy in the Old Testament. This was a rabbinic law, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The enemy part was probably the rabbis of Jesus' day. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may sons of the Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, after he explains the real spirit of the law, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Just want to look at two points here. First, Jesus reconfirmed his commitment to God's historic standards and ethics. Now, this is a tough part of the passage to understand. I'm going to put these verses up here, the verses I'm referring to here. Scholars are not certain about some of what Jesus says here. We're we're just having a hard time understanding what he meant. So if you were reading through a Bible commentary, there would be a ton of dialogue about these two verses and a lot less about the rest of it, where we really do understand sort of the author's intent. But this is theologically a little bit confusing to us, and I'll explain why in a moment. First of all, when Jesus is talking about the law or the prophets here, when he uses the word law, if you look at Jesus' statements throughout the New Testament, he can mean one of four things. He could just be referring specifically to the Ten Commandments. He could be referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, which were called the Pentateuch, the law. He could be referring to the whole Old Testament, which often was called the law, Or he could be referring to rabbinic traditions where the rabbis of Jesus' day took the Old Testament and added a bunch of commands to it. That was also called the law. So it was like the Old Testament plus their views of right and wrong. So first of all, that's one of the problems here. 
Jesus seems to be talking about the Old Testament in this case because he says the law and the prophets. Now we also see that Jesus emphasized his commitment to every facet of it. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke. The smallest letter, if you know Hebrew at all, and I've thankfully been able to forget most of what I learned about Hebrew, but uh, Hebrew has a little letter called a yod. It's almost like a little apostrophe. So Jesus is saying, until heaven and earth pass away, not even a little apostrophe, or if you're sort of crowning the top of a letter, none of those shall pass until all of it's accomplished. Now, our relationship to the law and what Jesus is saying here is one of the most confusing theological issues in Christianity. Because with the dawn of the church, we're not under the law in the same way. The law was a covenant in the Old Testament between God and Israel. And holy epistles like Romans and Galatians were written with the express purpose of helping us understand our relationship to the law and that we're not under it. We're not Jews. They had a big debate in the early church about whether men needed to be circumcised. Well, that was about whether new Christians needed to become Jews. Circumcision was the sign of being a Jew in order to become Christians. And the apostles made it clear we're not under the law. But yet we would still see these ten commandments reflected in the New Testament other th under things like the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit. So God's moral stance hasn't changed but we're not under the law technically. That's very confusing, but the Bible teaches that. So we're not sure what Jesus exactly means when he says that none of this is going to pass away until all of it is fulfilled. But a couple of things we do see, Jesus agrees with the Old Testament law and prophets. Now, he might have been saying that because many times Jesus is sort of disobeying the scribal laws. He gets in trouble with the Pharisees and the scribes because he breaks some of their rules. Also, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the only person who ever kept all of the law. He might be referring to that. Kingdom values build on it. They don't replace it. God's standards haven't changed. He might be saying that. Here's my point. We're not exactly sure what he meant. And there's a lot of debate about it. But this is clear. This much is clear. And I want you to hear this. Jesus is not introducing any new, looser moral code. We can agree on that. It's clear he's not creating distance between himself and the Ten Commandments. Jesus isn't creating some new ethic, you know, some new sexual ethic, some new moral ethic, and he's a lot softer on things. He's making it very clear that he is in sync with everything that God has written before. Now, I say that because many of you know there's a lot of movement in our world today within Christendom towards sort of a, you know, hey, I believe in sort of the, the red letters I see in the Bible. I believe in what Jesus said, but I'm not so sure I like the Apostle Paul, or I'm not so sure I like the God of the Old Testament. I think Jesus right here would have a problem with that as he affirms the Old Testament in his own theology. Some of us also struggle with this difference we see in the Old Testament between God there and God in the New Testament. So it's very common to be in discussions with, with Christians about how it seems like we've got almost a different God between the two Testaments. And we don't have a different God. Well, we do have sort of a different, a different kingdom presentation. 
I mean, the Old Testament, you've got a theocracy where God is king and he's working with a nation. You see all sorts of interesting things like their battles, their wars that God is involved in. And it seems a little barbaric. That's because we're dealing with the theocracy of Israel. But I would just say in the New Testament, if you think that Jesus got all you know, soft and fuzzy and you've got this austere, difficult, demanding God in the Old Testament, I would just say, find me anything about hell in the Old Testament. There isn't much. You know who popularized the idea of hell? Jesus. Who we want to be all soft and cuddly. He introduced more theology about hell than you'll find in all of the Old Testament. So there really isn't a difference. There is this consistency. Jesus is a member of the Trinity. Jesus is not independent of the Father and the Son. He's not inconsistent with the Father and the Son. They wrote the Old Testament. And Jesus is presenting his views of how it should have been interpreted. And that brings us to the bigger issue, the bigger bulk of this text. Jesus' interpretations and expectations are beyond our best behaviors. This is a fascinating passage, especially if Jesus is teaching this to people who really have a sense that they're good enough for God, people who are really self-righteous. And if if you're a person who thinks, you know, hey, I'm kind of good enough, how could God not accept me? These are the kind of passages that should make all of us nervous. It's a fascinating passage because Jesus begins by saying that our righteousness, our sort of good behaviors, the best that we can offer God needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. All right, now, For some of us, we're thinking, well, that can't be hard because look at how Jesus has excoriated the scribes and the Pharisees in other places. I mean, he just lights them up. But I gotta tell you, they were better than us. He lights them up because they were self-righteous. They were self-righteous for a reason because these were really, really, really good people who then thought they didn't need God. Scribes were Old Testament lawyers. So Israel was a theocracy, as I said, where God is king. So when you look in the Old Testament law, like Exodus and Deuteronomy, there's no difference between the civil part of the law, how to run their government, and the religious part of the law. The Old Testament law contained both because it's a theocracy. So the scribes are sort of Old Testament lawyers, if you want to think of them that way. The Pharisees were like a brotherhood of middle-class individuals, about six to 10,000 of them. There was never that many. Even, if, even though Israel would have millions of people at this point in history, there were probably only six to 10,000 Pharisees, but they dominated the religious culture. They separated themselves from the culture. And they believed that Israel was in a mess because they had stopped obeying God's laws. And so they said, we've got to get everyone to obey God's laws. In fact, we're going to be so conservative. We're going to be more conservative than God. We're going to build a fence around the law. We're going to make it hard to cross that fence by taking God's rules and sort of putting them on steroids. So the Pharisees went to the scribes and they said, okay, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What does working on the Sabbath look like? And so these scribes would come up with literally hundreds or thousands of applications of that Sabbath law. And it got absolutely crazy. They would tell you, well, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so you probably shouldn't carry stuff. Well, how much can you carry before it's considered work? You know, how much, and and they literally had rules for all of this stuff that went into infinitesimal detail. The scribes came up with these rules. The Pharisees tried to apply them. They tried to live them. In fact, if you want to see what some of this is, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, I would encourage you to pick up the Mishnah or the Gemara 
The Mishnah was the oral law that all these scribes came up with, which was eventually written down, and the Gemara was all the discussion of the rabbis about all of those thousands of rules. And Jesus says, my expectations are higher. You need to be better than this group of people, which in our vernacular would mean if you want to get to heaven, what Jesus is saying, you better be better than Mother Teresa. You better be better than Billy Graham. You better be better than your saintly grandmother because God's expectations are higher than all of theirs. Okay, so Jesus starts saying that. I'm imagining the crowd is wondering, what could he possibly mean? How could we possibly do that? And so he explained what he meant. He took six laws from the Old Testament and from rabbinic tradition a little bit, part of one of them, and he explains what God originally intended when he wrote those laws, some of them in the Ten Commandments. And he isn't critiquing God's commands. He's not saying, you know, hey, I've got a better version. He's critiquing our interpretation of those commands. He's pointing out the spirit of the law. In other words, he's pointing out what it would really look like in our hearts and in our lives if we really obeyed the Ten Commandments the way God intended them when he wrote them. So he picked out six. He begins to talk about them. Verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, 43. He begins a new command. You shall not murder. shall not commit adultery. Issues on divorce. Laws about oaths or telling the truth. Justice laws, eye for an eye. Love your neighbor. Those six. And this is what he said. Here's his expectation. He said, you've heard... The ancients say, or you've understood it this way, you shall not commit murder. Now that's a good rendition because the thou shalt not kill is not really what's intended in the Hebrew. Murder is the issue. Murder is personal vengeance. The Bible is, in my opinion, not against just war. The Old Testament is full of it. So we shouldn't get pacifism out of that command. But we have a murder command, you shall not murder, which is a personal vengeance issue. He says, don't think you're righteous just because you haven't murdered somebody. He says, it goes way beyond that. He says, anger is the issue. Anger is murder in the heart. He says, so if you're going down the highway, that's in the Hebrew there, if you're going down the highway and you look at somebody, especially, by the way, Deerfoot Trail, I have found in Calgary, I live in Signal Hill, and I gotta tell you, in Signal Hill, people are polite, I mean, Signal Hill is just a couple of kinds of people, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into it. A lot of them are older, but not all of them, but people there are really nice on the road. If you signal to get in, they let you in. They drive slow. They drive so slow it makes me at times angry. But anyway, which is what this command is about. But you can't you know, sort of look out your window or to the car next to you and say, you know, you good for nothing or you fool. Jesus says when you say that, it's murder in your heart and it's deserving of hell. He says when you start feeling that towards people, it's better to run to them and reconcile. He says you can't afford broken relationships because anger itself is murder in the heart because you're wishing somebody else didn't exist. Anger is murder in the heart. When God said don't kill somebody, don't murder somebody, what he's really after is our attitude towards other people who are made in the image of God. Have you ever wanted anyone dead? Now that might sound a little aggressive and I know that you're all very good Canadians. <laughs> I have. I have. 
You know, people who've tried to wreck your life. It's happened to me recently. My wife told me about somebody who was in dire physical condition. And there's somebody who had not been really good to me. And when I heard about it, my response really was, this just doesn't affect me a bit. It did nothing. I felt no compassion whatsoever. I'm not sure I'm in good shape on this one. Any non-murderers in here? Anyone ever angry? You have heard and understood, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus is saying, don't think you're righteous just because you haven't slept around. He said, that's not the issue. Yes, physical adulteries can have some consequences greater than lust in your heart, but lust is the issue. Lust is adultery of the heart. It's adultery of the heart without the opportunity. But you, you might take it if you had the opportunity. You know, in the world we live in, you know, movies that, you're really good movies, but got a little short nudity scene or porn, or the beach, frankly. Did you know that like common swimwear, to, I'm sorry, I realize this dates me from the 17th century, I get it. But I'm just gonna talk like an old man who was born in the 17th century and I'm completely removed from modernity. But I'm just telling you that beachwear today is like pornography in the 40s and 50s, okay? Can you just trust me on that? Some of the older people in the congregation are like shaking their head like, yeah, you know. And I'm not saying how you know or what you know, because, okay. But here's the reality. Society has kept moving to the point where, I'm not saying don't go to a public beach, I'm just saying let's kind of admit what it is. You go to the beach, you know, and you're a dude, and you don't follow the homeschool moniker, bounce your eyes. I'm assuming that came from the homeschoolers. I can't imagine anyone else came up with that. And I love homeschoolers, they're some of my best friends. But where did the bounce your eyes thing come from? You know, moms and dads telling their little boys, you know, bounce your eyes. Any non-adulterers in the room? You have heard and understood, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, what's interesting about that is Jesus is saying, don't think you're righteous just because you follow the divorce rules. Now, where this comes from is Deuteronomy 24. And what's interesting is, no, I, I do not follow the normal divorce codes of most evangelical pastors. I'm just going to admit that. Because I think that the Bible has been misunderstood in most evangelical churches on this issue. So on this issue, I don't agree. I probably don't even agree with Bethany's position on it. So you can stone me after the service. That would probably be an acceptable response. But here's the deal. The divorce code in the Old Testament was intended to protect women so they could remarry. So I don't know how churches can come up with no divorce, no remarriage policies, and I'm not saying that's our policy, I'm just saying it makes no sense because the divorce code was written to protect women when they went through divorce so they could remarry so they could be economically viable in that culture. So I don't know how you can say God's against it all the time because the, the Bible's got all sorts of rules to protect women. So here's the deal. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 24, it says if you're going to divorce your wife because you find something that, you know, it seems to be about sexual chastity there, you find something indecent about her, then you have to give her a certificate of divorce. Now, you can read what those certificates of divorce are among scholars, and basically it's allowing the woman to remarry. That's the whole point of a certificate of divorce, so she can remarry. 
There's two divorce passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, which talks about non-performance on a marriage contract. You can divorce over that. And Deuteronomy 24, where it talks about sexual uh, impropriety. And Jesus is saying to these people, you seem to feel good about yourselves because you follow a simple legal code, which means when you left your wife, you gave her a certificate of divorce. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm concerned that most of your divorces were groundless in the first place. That's what he's getting at here. Don't feel good because you followed the strict rules in the divorce office. He said most of the divorces that go on should have never happened. And there were two schools of debate in Jesus' day. The school of Hillel that said, you know, if you don't like your wife's cooking or she burns things, you can hear her a few houses down because she's got the windows open and she's a little loud for you, then you can divorce over that. I am not making this up. That's what you get when you get a bunch of dudes sitting around with coffee talking about reasons for divorce. And they called that in their culture the any cause divorce or divorce for any reason. That is what it was called. That's the technical name for it. The school of Hillel believed that. The school of Shammai, another rabbinic school or seminary, said no, the Old Testament seems to read that you can only divorce over sexual impropriety or Exodus 21 over other issues in the divorce contract. And Jesus says, you know what? If we've got a group of people who have all these groundless divorces, it sort of puts adulterous overtones in all the remarriages because we weren't supposed to have all these divorces in the first place. So don't think you're righteous just because you follow the rules of divorce and we shouldn't be leaving our spouses. We're a lot less righteous than we think. You have heard and understood you shall not make false vows but fulfill your vows to the Lord. Jesus says don't think you're righteous because you tell the truth sometimes. Now, in that culture, it's hard to understand what they mean, but here's what's going on. There was what's called frivolous swearing, and swearing in that culture was not like, you know, some curse words. Swearing meant you were like saying, you know, I swear I will do what I said I'm going to do. It's that like taking an oath swearing. So they would like attach oaths to all kinds of statements, and there was what's called evasive swearing. There were binding oaths. Those were very important because then you would say, you know what, I swear I'm going to, you know, go to town and do such and such. I swear by the name of God. I swear by Jehovah I'm going to do this. And when you said that, God became the partner in the transaction. And so you took that oath very seriously because you involved God in it. And then there were non-binding oaths which would be like, I swear I'm going to go to town and do thus and thus, I swear by Jerusalem or something like that, or I swear by heaven. Because I didn't use the name of God, the Pharisees said, well, you don't have to keep that one. So it was basically a way that people just became liars. Do we always tell the truth? Do we mislead? Any real truthful people here? Jesus said, you have heard or understood, verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, don't think you're righteous because equitable justice is enough for you. Now this is actually interesting. This comes out of other moral codes in the ancient world as well. It's the, the law of, it's lex talionis, the law of sort of tit for tat, which means if somebody did something in an ancient culture, you could exact that level of justice. So I want you to think of this in modern terms. You're watching the Toronto Blue Jays, and Toronto Blue Jays are playing the Boston Red Sox, who I'm assuming they don't like much because they're in the same division. And nobody likes the Red Sox unless you're from Boston. So Toronto's playing Boston, and the Boston pitcher beans a Toronto hitter. Hits him. Now, it might be an accident, but maybe there's some bad blood between those teams. So the next inning, the Toronto pitcher is up, and what do you expect him to do? 
You expect him to be a Boston hitter because it's sort of a tit-for-tat situation, and it's viewed as weakness if you don't do that. That is the law of Lex Talionis. And what it meant is that you could exact a legitimate amount of, of revenge, if you will, or justice from an offending party. And what's interesting is the law was that way in ancient cultures, so it prevented payback from growing with each turn. It's like if an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth is so you don't go from an eye or a tooth to a murder. So the law was intended to restrain the level of justice. But Jesus said, you know, limited payback is not the ideal character goal for his followers. Even if justice is served, said the ideal situation is somebody offends you, somebody hurts you, Somebody wrecks your career, somebody hurts your life, somebody hurts one of your kids, turn the other cheek. Settle a lawsuit that's unfair to you. Walk the extra mile. Now that comes from the rule that because they were dominated by Rome, a Roman soldier could ask you to like carry their stuff for a mile. And they said if a Roman soldier asks you to do that, carry it an extra mile. Let stuff go be taken advantage of, and be okay with that. I really stink at this one. I want justice, and I want justice in this lifetime, and I'm a little disappointed that you usually don't get that. And if I can get Jesus in a room in heaven alone, I'm gonna talk to him about that. Or I'm hoping there's a room on the way into heaven where we can just fix our justice issues with people who've offended us. See, we want fairness. It's a part of the image of God in us. We want absolute justice. Jesus says, you know what? When you demand that, that's not the spirit of the law. You've heard and understood, and this kind of ties together, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the hate your enemy would probably be a rabbinic addition because the Bible actually doesn't say that. Jesus says, don't think you're righteous if you love those who love you. Love your enemies. Love the people that are hard to love. Love the people who actually hate you. Be better than the world of Gentiles and tax collectors. He says, the world around us loves their own. Who doesn't love people who love them? Enemy, any enemy lovers here? Not me. See, nobody lives up to these standards. Jesus expects it, though. He ends this sermon with the most damning words that you can just about find in the Old Testament. After all of that, he doesn't say, it's okay, it's okay. I know I'm being a little strict, it's okay. He says, be perfect. Be perfect. Even as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Telios, fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. We were created to be like God, and that's the standard. Live up to this standard, as explained by God's Son. Live up to the author's interpretation. That's the standard of righteousness God expects, and yet you'll never hit it. So what do we do with this? Two things. One, recognize that the chasm is greater than we thought, and so is the grace. One writer says most people really believe that the Christian commandments, for example, to love one's neighbor as oneself, are intentionally a little too severe. 
that Jesus is intentionally asking to do th- us to do things we can't do. It's like putting the clock ahead half an hour to make sure we're not going to be late in the morning. I never understood that. It's just confusing because then you got to keep track of where all your clocks are because you never know what the time really is. And if you live with somebody like this, you know that can be a little bit interesting because you don't necessarily think the same about that. And you get in your truck and you're 10 minutes early and you were already planning being 10 minutes early, now you're 20 minutes early. People think Jesus was like that. He just overstates it. He doesn't expect it. No, no, he does expect this. Jesus was speaking to a self-righteous culture and I suspect they were shocked by this because he was turning them into sinners. They didn't realize how great their moral failure was. Most of us have had a Bible in front of us for much of our lives and I'm telling you, whether you have or not, the gap is really significant between where we live, even as Christ followers, and what God expects of us. And thank God that there's more to the book of Matthew. And by the end of the book, the cross covers the failure. The cross covers the distance. But if you're one of those people who read the Bible and you think, hey, man, I'm doing it all, man. I am really good. I'm really good. When I look at this sermon, I realize, oh, my goodness, I hope I make heaven. And then I realize, yeah, it's nothing to do with me. I've, I've got a Savior who died and covered the gap between where I'm supposed to be and who I really am. But when you see what Jesus says was originally intended in the law, it's a real reality check for us. Second, and this is probably most important for us, sometimes the edge is closer than we think. So stay away. In his book, Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon, Michael Giglieri chronicles the nearly 700 deaths that have occurred in the Grand Canyon since the 1870s. Of course, most people aren't shocked that fatal mishaps occur there. After all, the Grand Canyon is 277 miles long, up to 18 miles wide, and attains a depth of over a mile, or 6,000 feet. The extreme temperatures, which exceed 100 degrees, can quickly lead to heat stroke and dehydration. I went down the Grand Canyon, I believe about 100 miles over about 10 days with a group of scholars from Answers in Genesis in the States looking at sort of the geology of the Grand Canyon and so on. It's fascinating. But it's a lot safer when you're down on the bottom. And we went through some rapids. We were on this massive raft that would have been hard to get hurt. But not when you're on top. How do most of the deaths occur? Air crashes account for the largest number of deaths at the Grand Canyon. Floods have claimed the lives of some of the river rafters. Other despondent souls have taken their own lives. But according to Giglieri, the number of people have gone over the edge and fallen to their death, many of them because of their own carelessness. They ignored posted warnings and confidently walked out onto dangerous precipices. For example, in 1992, a 38-year-old father jokingly tried to frighten his teenage daughter by leaping onto a guardrail. He flailed his arms as he pretended to lose his balance, and then he comically fell on the canyon side onto a ledge he assumed was safe. Sadly, after ignoring numerous warning signs, he lost his footing and he fell 400 feet. 2012, an 18-year-old woman who was hiking on the North Rim Trail decided to venture off the beaten path to have her picture taken as a spot, at a spot known as Inspiration Point. She sat down on the ledge of the 1,500-foot deep canyon. The rocks gave way, and she plummeted to her death. These deaths weren't just tragic. They're completely avoidable. Do you really want your last word to be like, ah? No. 
Look at how close I can get to the rim without falling. Look at how close I can get to the edge without falling. Call me overly cautious, but without a hang glider or a parachute attached to my body, I can see the Grand Canyon just fine 10 yards back from the precipice. See, what Jesus does here is he sort of redefines where the edge is. When he's saying, hey, don't just not commit murder, handle your anger. Don't just not commit adultery, handle your lust. Don't just like be okay with a limited amount of justice that's built into the rules. No, no, no. Don't be a person who needs vengeance at all. He changes where the edge is. He changes how close we should get to it. We should be running far away from ungodliness in our lives. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that in every one of our lives, we would recognize how holy you truly are and how far we really are from reaching the standards that you set out for us. But that shouldn't discourage us. It shouldn't make us feel like, well, we can never be good enough. It should help us to recognize that though we can never be good enough, it's exactly why we needed a Savior. And I pray that you would help us to recognize in Jesus and in the spirit that he puts within us when we follow Jesus, in Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed into the kind of people who can live out your expectations. We can't do this on our own. But when we come to faith in Jesus and acknowledge him as Son of God, Savior, and Lord, you begin that transformation process where we are changed from the inside out. So we become better than we otherwise would be. Help us to find that in you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.